All right, so today we're in uh, Lesson 21. We're going to talk about the servant brings salvation. The Messiah is going to bring salvation. And this is going to cover Isaiah 54, verse 1, through Isaiah 57, verse 21. And uh, so we're going to look at these. Again, we're not going to read these passages as we go, uh, simply because there is a lot of material here. We just want to give you an overview so first thing you're going to notice is when you come to Isaiah 54, the focus of Isaiah 54 is going to be talking about salvation for Israel. Okay? Now again, this is a future perspective that he has because the Babylonian captivity has not taken place, nor the other things in the future. This is a promise from God to them about the, the future salvation. So he begins... In verses 1 to 3, talking about their numerical growth. They're going to grow as a people. And he starts off with probably a most significant group of people within the Jewish community that would be blessed because of that, and that is women. So the barren women are to praise God because they will be fruitful. Now, there, there is still, even in our society, would you say there's still a, there is a, there's a stigma, at least in the church, with, with couples who don't have children? Do they, do they face pressure to have kids? Would you say they do? Yeah, they, who said that? Tim, okay. How many agree with Tim? How many don't care? <laughs> you know, but it is a very real pressure. I, I've met people through the years... And for whatever reason, medically, they weren't able to have kids. But there was this pressure on them to have kids. And they would always, uh, they'd, they'd get, be the brunt of it. What do you mean? Well, they have people come and make, so when are you two going to get your act together and have kids? Maybe if you've heard something like that. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and, and it would, it's a devastating thing, especially when you have people who want to have kids and they can't have kids. All right, now that's in our context. Let's transfer ourselves back a couple thousand years or more to a culture, a society, Israel, where it's an agrarian culture. You pass on your inheritance, which comes when they entered into the land. Remember, everyone got an inheritance. You pass on your inheritance to your heirs, so you got to have what? Children. There's also the concept of you might be the one who's chosen to bear the Messiah. And so you've got all this pressure about having kids. And you are a woman who's not able to have any. That would be a stigma, wouldn't it? Well, you know what the best illustration of that stigma would be is 1 Samuel chapter 1. We meet a woman there by the name of Hannah. Remember what Hannah went through and the grief that she carried for not having a child and going to the temple and asking God to give her a child and ultimately God gave her a child, Samuel, who would be the prophet Samuel. Now, the point is, is that there's this pressure. So first of all, when he's talking about salvation for Israel... God says, hey, the barren women are to praise God because they're going to be fruitful. 
that's really a practical aspect of salvation for them, isn't it? Because they're being told the barren women are going to have kids. You know, the barren women are going to have kids. And here's what will happen. Israel will increase in number and settle in desolate cities. They'll increase in number, and then they'll be able to take over the cities that they had to give up, that fell into ruins. And, and this would be very much a blessing. So if you think about it, you think about what was left taken over to Babylon. They're in Babylon for 70 years, and then they make the journey back. It's not the same number of Jews that existed before Babylon came in and destroyed them. It's still a small group. And God's saying to them, you're going to increase in numbers. You're going to multiply, and then you're going to take over these cities that lay desolate again. You're going to inhabit them and so forth. That, that's a very big promise of numerical growth. So then when you come to, in 54 verses 4 to 8, he's going to talk about the nation being regathered. Okay, so the Lord will take back Israel like a husband who takes back his wife. So he's given a very practical illustration of, of a husband who takes back his wife who'd not been faithful, but he brings her back, okay? He brings her back. They are, were only forsaken for a moment, but he will gather them in great mercies. So he's saying, you were only forsaken by me for the moment, but I will gather you back in. Now, I think this passage we're going to look at here is very important because you may not be aware of it, but there is a, a theology that kind of permeates Christianity in America right now. And it's called replacement theology. Has anybody ever heard of replacement theology? If you say no, then say no. No, okay? All right, now, so let me explain to you what replacement theology is. It is a viewpoint, and it's been around for a few centuries now, but it's starting to emerge that God has chosen to replace Israel because Israel was unfaithful and unfaithful. He has forsaken them. And so therefore, he has now replaced them with something better. Anybody know what the something better would be? The church, yes. Yeah, so, so Israel now has been replaced because they disqualified themselves. What would have disqualified themselves? How would they have been disqualified from God's promises or from, from uh, what he said he would do for them? Well, because they killed the Christ, okay, yeah, that's right. What else? Their sin, turning from him. So the, I'm, I'm, some of you are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe. Yeah, I'm just telling you what the, the, the I don't believe it, okay? So don't, don't worry, we're, we're not embracing replacement theology here, okay? But here's the point. When you look at a passage like this, yeah, maybe they're forsaken right now, but the Scripture very clearly tells us, like in this passage, they're only forsaken for a moment. God has a reason for what? Turning his attention away from Israel. Does that mean he still he doesn't love them anymore? No, he still loves them. You know, in fact, Scripture very clearly talks about that when the fullness of the Gentiles come. Now, does anybody know when Paul talks about the fullness of the Gentile, what, what does that mean? Because then he turns his attention back to Israel. 
What is the fullness of the Gentiles? Anybody know? Yes, that's exactly right, Bruce. It, is, it can also be translated when the full number of the Gentiles. See, God knows exactly how many Gentiles are going to be saved. And when his plan, right now, his plan is to include who, folks, in his plan? Us. And when that full number is reached, what? Then Israel will be saved. Then he'll turn his attention back to him. And Bruce has brought in the eschatological framework of that. That's going to occur with what? The rapture, okay? Because then the attention turns back to who? To Israel, right? Okay. So <clears throat> here, here he's saying in Isaiah, he's giving him a future promise. You know, you're only forsaken for a moment. I'm going to gather you back in great mercies. I'm going to gather you back in great mercies. Now, the Lord will make a promise to them as he did with Noah after the flood. So he's going to make a promise with Israel like he made with Noah. All right, so let's stop for a moment to understand what kind of promise we're talking about here. What promise did he make to Noah? All right, so after the ark. <clears throat> Well, he tells him to replenish the earth, but what does he tell him? He makes a promise. Yeah, not going to flood it, and he gave them what as a sign? The rainbow. So the promise is, is I'll never again destroy the world with a flood. And he gives them a rainbow to solidify that promise. Now, here he's going to make a promise with Israel how is, how is the promise going to be the same here as with Noah? He's not flooding them, but what, what's, what, what do you think the point is here? What's that? Yeah, from that point on, they're his. He's not going to cast them off again. Would you say that's, you, okay, he's going to promise, because right now he's cast them off, right? And they are enduring, and my, have they endured for 2,000 years, the brutality. Not just with the Holocaust, but with many things over the two, last 2,000 years, okay? So, and he's going to make a promise, like a promise to Noah, that isn't going to happen again. That's a pretty powerful promise, isn't it? He's going to tell them it's not going to happen again, all right? So even though the mountain may depart, he will not remove his kindness from Israel. Now, what kind of a promise is that? So even though the mountain may depart. So, okay, the only mountain we have around here that's significant to us is Rockton Mountain, right? All right, so if you look up and you see Rockton Mountain and the log stretch up the road to get there on 322, <clears throat> even if you could fathom that that mountain is gone, when you look up over there, it's flat, That, that doesn't seem possible, right? But God's saying, like, if the mountain were removed, I'm still going to love you. I'm not going to remove my kindness from you. You know what I'm saying? I will not remove my kindness for you. Now, who's that promise based on? Is it based on Israel? Well, Jesus, but all, yes, Jesus, but 
ultimately God. God says, this promise is based on me. See, this is the problem with replacement theology. Replacement theology says that uh, Israel has disqualified itself. Well, let's just remind ourselves of something. When God made a covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with David, was his covenant based on how they were doing? No, it was always based on him. It wasn't based on them, it was based on him. And his promise of what he's going to do and what he's promising him them is on him, not on them. Okay, so for instance, folks, let's, let's, so let's bring it to a way that you understand. When you think about your salvation, let's bring it to our salvation, all right? Why were you saved? Okay, it's based on him, not us. Okay, so would everybody agree with that? Your salvation doesn't have anything to do with you. No. So it's because of everything that Jesus did. Or is it because you came from the right family? Have the right bank account? Been perfect all your life and never did a wrong thing? You know what I'm saying? We had, I had a guy at, you know, at the swimming pool on, on uh, one of this morning. He, he made a mistake and uh, one of the guys said, hey... Well, you're good for at least another 20 years. You only make one mistake every 20 years, right? You know, and, and, and you know, we, we, no, we make mistakes all the time. We mess up all the time, right? And, and so it's not based on you, right? It's based on who? So when you are sitting there and you're wondering if you're saved, and sometimes we have those thoughts, right? The truth is, your salvation isn't based on you and what you did or didn't do or who you are or who you're not or how you're feeling. Your salvation is based on who, folks? What Jesus did. Salvation. Now, here's the same thing. He's saying, you know what? My love for you, Israel, is based on me. And even if this mountain were gone, my kindness won't be removed towards you. Do you understand? So he loves his people. And that, that has implications for you and I. So let's go on. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with precious stones. Now we know that's true where? From Revelation chapter 21. If you want to write that down as a reference, Revelation chapter 21. And it's, I believe it's verses 1 to 4. And I saw, John saw the new city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And then in chapter 21, it describes the very beauty of the new city, Jerusalem, okay? Their children will be taught by the Lord himself. We go over to Revelation chapter 21. It says, God will dwell in the midst of his people. So here, Isaiah is saying, you know, he's going to rebuild the city and the Lord himself will teach the people. He'll teach their children. They will be established in righteousness and not ruled by fear. Wow, that's pretty interesting, right? They'll be established in righteousness and they're not going to be ruled by fear. You know, we understand being ruled by fear, right? You know, we understand that. I'll give you an example. So yesterday I had, to, I had to drive down to Pittsburgh early in the morning to go pick up Foster and Lauren and uh, I'm cruising down 28 from Catanning all the way down and going into Pittsburgh and I get to 
uh, Natrona Heights there, and there comes a car coming down the hill, and it's got its lights flashing, flashing its lights. And I'm thinking, what in the world is with that guy? And then I thought, oh, he's telling me there's a cop up ahead. So I'm checking my speed, you know what I'm saying? I've got it on cruise, but I'm making sure the cruise is in the acceptable area of speed. And sure enough, when I get to the crest of the hill, there's a cop right there looking at my lane with what? A speed radar. Now, that's called ruling by fear, right? And, and we do that. It, that's laws have a penalty for, with them in our society. And you rule people by fear, okay? God says he's not going to rule by fear. He's going to establish them in right righteousness and will not, and they'll be not be ruled by fear. Here's the thing. No enemy will rise against Israel again. No enemy will rise against it. That has not been true at all throughout centuries, folks. The Lord calls anyone who is seeking to come to him for true satisfaction. Okay, so now we're into Isaiah 55. And so we're going to see salvation for the Gentiles. So anyone who's seeking, come to him for true salvation. He's saying, he asks, why are they seeking fulfillment from what, from that which cannot bring it? That's a pretty good question, right? God is saying here, why are you looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in that which cannot bring it? Do you know what I'm saying? We've all fallen in that trap. If I, if I get that buck, then I'll be satisfied. No, you're not. You're back out next year looking for an even bigger one. Do you know what I'm saying? And, you know, if I get this, or if I get this car, or if I get this computer that's tenth of a second faster than before with a bigger hard drive, then, then I'll, I'll be satisfied. Right, really. Yeah. We're never satisfied, Right? And God's asking that question, why are you seeking fulfillment? If you come to me, I'll give you true fulfillment, okay? I'll give you true satisfaction. So the Lord states that he will make an everlasting covenant with the one who comes to him. Now, now folks, this now section of Scripture, chapter 55, is dealing with Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? That's us. So here's what he's saying I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. So again, I'm entering into an agreement with you that has no expiration date. I'm going to enter into a, an everlasting covenant with you, and it's not hinged on you. Like you've seen some comments, if this party B doesn't do this, then the contract is null and void. That's not the covenant he's making here. All right? So the Lord gave the Messiah to the people as a leader and a commander. So he's saying, you want a true leader? There is one. He's Jesus. Okay? He's the Messiah. Many nations will come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord because of the Messiah. So the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Why? Because of the Messiah. Now, who's the Messiah, folks? We know him as Jesus, right? Okay. The prophet calls the reader to seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord. Okay, what does that mean? 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. What does that mean to you? Okay, ask for salvation while he can be found right now before it's too late. Now, what would make it too late? Okay, yeah, the judgment date will be too late. His coming back. What's another reason why it would become too late? Yeah, death. You'll die. There, there is no second chance later, folks. Did you understand what I'm saying? You're to seek the Lord while he may be found, which is what? Right now, okay? You've got to take the opportunity right now. You can't say, you can't say oh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take that moment later, okay? I'll take care of that later. I've heard people say, yeah, I know I need to do that, but I'll do that later. Well, you know what? I've lived long enough now and have, have been around long enough and have even experienced this personally enough now. You have no clue how long you're going to be alive. You know, I think about my own dad. At 41, he was killed. 41, my brother, 38, had a heart attack. Boom, he was gone. 38. We've seen him from babies. You don't know. Do you understand what I'm saying? So while he may be found, the, the encouragement is what? Seek the Lord while he may be found. The wicked are called to turn from their sin and go to the Lord who forgives. So here he is, he's saying, you guys turn from your sin and who come to, come to me because I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. So the Lord's thoughts and ways are not like our own. They're not like our own. Now, typically when we read that passage, we usually think, and this came out in the gentle and lowly study. If you came to that chapter about his ways are not our ways, the, the emphasis there is, is that it's talking about the heart of God. God and how he deals with people is not like our heart. Now, typically we quote these verses to talk about God's providence and sovereignty in area, but in the reference, in the context of the passage that it's looking at here, it's with regards to his wanting people to come to him in salvation. And he's not like us. His ways are not our ways. You say, I don't understand what you're saying, George. Okay, here. You ever get angry at somebody, you make the decision, I am never doing anything with that person again, ever. Boom, you write them off. Do we write people off? And so because of that, you don't do anything with them again. You're not even open to that. That is natural. That is human. God's not like that. His ways are not like our ways. Why? Because he tells people, you stop sinning, come to me and I'll forgive you. You stop sinning, come to me and I'll forgive you. My ways are not like your ways. It's talking about his heart. Now, let's help comprehend that a little bit further here. Aren't you glad? Because, okay, hold on a second. Because, I mean, there are people, I, I mean, I'm human. So there are people like, all right, I am done. I've been burned one too many times here. I'm done. I'm not, you know, I am not answering the phone call again. I'm, I'm done, okay? 
My goodness, aren't I glad that God doesn't operate that way with me? Why? Because his ways are not our ways. He doesn't deal with us like humans would deal with each other. You know, he doesn't deal with us in that way. So, let's go on now. So, the Lord's words will accomplish what he pleases it to do. So God's saying, my words are going to accomplish what I want it to do. So he's talking about his sovereignty here, okay? There will be peace, joy, and abundance as the curse of the garden is removed. All right, so what's the curse of the garden, anybody? Okay, yes, sin caused the curse, but remember what the curse was? Death, that'll be removed. Here's one other one. One of the other curses you and I endured every day. By the sweat of your brow, you shall what? Labor. By the sweat of your brow, for your food, you're going you're gonna to have to work. You know what I'm saying? You're going to have to work. That's all just part of the curse. That will be removed because there will be Joy now and peace and abundance. What? In the new kingdom, in the new creation, okay? The reader is urged to do what is right because salvation is coming. So again, the, the prophet is saying here, come on, folks. Don't dilly-dally. He's merciful. He's, he's willing. Do what you got to do. Salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. So people who are outside of the covenant should not think that there is no blessing if should not think there is no blessing if they follow the Lord. So here it's talking about the reality that basically for those who are outside don't think that there's no blessing if they follow the Lord. There is a blessing. If you're outside of the covenant, that's who folks, you and I, there's what? A blessing for us if we follow the Lord. The Lord will bless them and give them an everlasting name. Yeah, where do we see that? Revelation, and he'll write on a stone a new name that only he and you will know. I'll give you a new name. You know, I like George, but some, at some day in the future, I'm going to have a different name. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be a name that Jesus gives me. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be a name that Jesus gives me. Now, the Lord will gather with Israel the Gentiles who follow him. So those Gentiles who follow him will be gathered with Israel. We'll join in the promise, okay? We'll join in the promise. The Lord calls the Gentile nations to devour Israel because of her blindness. So now he shifts and he's going to talk about him using the Gentile nations here to what? Bring judgment on Israel because why? They've forsaken the Lord. You say, no, wait a minute, George. Why is he shifting here? He just talked about the salvation of Israel and everything. Yeah, but right now in the meantime, the prophet is saying, I'm going to use the Gentiles as a tool to what? Punish you. Punish you. Their leaders were consumed with their own lusts and did not see the coming judgment. All right. Man, that is a great illustration of what's going on today. 
today, most people don't have any concept that there's a judgment coming. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Why? They're consumed with what? Yeah, their own desires. What they want. They're not thinking about death. They're not thinking about the ultimate reality. They're consumed with what they want. And that's the point that he's making here. But there's a judgment that's coming. And the righteous had to endure the frustration of evil around them. And isn't that true? You and I have to endure the frustration of evil around us. It's interesting when you see in the New Testament uh, um, Lot being mentioned, it talks about that righteous man being vexed in his soul by what he saw. That's an illustration of this. It's a man who, who is right with God, but he has to endure the garbage that's around him. And that's what he's talking about. The righteous had to endure the frustration of evil around them. The Israelites, again, he's talking about the judgment. This is a judgment passage. The Israelites involved themselves with the worship of false gods. So here's Israel. They're involving themselves in, in the worship of false gods. They sacrificed their children and worshiped idols in the sacred groves. That's how depraved they got. Now remember, earlier we talked about the blessing passage that, that the barren would what be able to have children because children were so important to their society. It meant being able to pass on your inheritance. Well, they got to the place that they got so depraved in returning from God and worshiping these idols that they were willing and they didn't just weren't willing, they what? They sacrificed those very children to these false gods in these sacred groves, in these high places around on the hills. They sent others to worship foreign gods. So it isn't just that they're worshiping gods their own. They're sending people on pilgrimages to, to go to these places and worship other foreign gods. So in spite of hardship, they continue to sin by worshiping idols. So even though the pressure is coming on, have you ever noticed that? It's kind of like someone who is doing the wrong thing, and because he's doing the wrong thing, he's just creating havoc in his own life. So in spite of the havoc that's happening because of this activity that they're involved in, they continue in that activity, and this is what he's saying. So in spite of the hardship and all of the problems that are happening, and, be, and even the enemies that are coming against them, they continue to what? Sin by worshiping idols. Worshiping idols. The Israelites forgot the Lord because he was supposedly silent. So, hey, God's not answering me. I'm going to go off looking somewhere else. Oh, by the way, when God doesn't answer you, what does that use? What, what there could be several reasons why. There is one thing that you very clearly know that might be happening if God's not answering you. What is that? Yeah, Psalm 66, verse 18. If you regard iniquity in your heart, I will not hear your prayers. Okay? 
So, but now because God's not answering it, well, you know what? I'm going to have to go somewhere else. Get my answer somewhere else. And they go off on these other idols. The Lord will expose the true nature of their righteousness. That is scary. All right, so let me ask you a question. I, you know, I've been in church a long time. I got saved in 1985. Started going to a little bitty independent Baptist church in West Columbia, South Carolina. <clears throat> been in church, been pastoring for a while now. Would you say that it is easy to act right in church? Yeah. Yeah, and especially in a church, if you've got a lot of things you've got to dress right, got to carry the right Bible, have your hair the right way, no facial hair, you know, whatever, blah, 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 all these rules. Is it easy to look good in church? Well, yeah, but here's the thing. Yeah, but you can still look like you're making an effort, right? You're on your best behavior in church. Well, here, here's the, but does that really reveal who you are? No, I mean, no, I mean, it doesn't reveal anything about who you really are. You know what I'm saying? It's just that for at least one hour, you're looking good, right? Maybe. Well, the Lord will expose the true nature of their righteousness. He's going to expose who they really are. Nothing is hidden from God. That, that's, that's what's amazing. Nothing is hidden from God. So the Lord mocks them when, they, when he states they should cry out to the idols who can do nothing for them. So God is mocking them. He says, you know what? Go ahead and cry out to those idols. Seek help from them. He's mocking them because he knows what? Those idols aren't going to do anything for them. So he's mocking them. The Lord who is high and lofty will fellowship with the lowly and contrite. Now when he's talking about the lowly and contrite, is he talking about the social economic status of people? What, what's he talking about here? When he's talking about them being lowly and contrite, is, he, is it how much money they have or what their education level is? What, what, what's he talking about? Who's he, who's he going to hang out with? Who's he going to fellowship with, connect with? What, what does lowly and contrite refer to here? Okay, so their perception of themselves. You look like you got a thought there, Bruce. Yes. Okay, so somebody whose heart is humble or lowly, someone whose heart is contrite, they, they reckon, kind of like if you remember in, in Jesus, Jesus said about two men went up to the temple, one was a Pharisee, you know, he, he, you know, he's like, look at me, look at all I've done, and I thank you, God, I'm not like this dude behind me. And the guy behind him was a tax collector, he beat his breast, he couldn't even look up, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And who was, Jesus' point was, who, who was righteous? The guy who thinks he's doing all the right things? Has got an attitude? Or the guy who's what? Can't even lift his eyes towards heaven and says, have mercy on me. 
That's lowly and contrite. So the Lord will fellowship with them. The Lord's anger does not last forever. Aren't you glad of that? <laughs> yeah, his anger does not last forever. And so even though he was harsh with them, he will forgive. So again, he's telling Israel, look, you're going off. You're chasing after idols. I'm going to bring these Gentile nations against you. You're going to suffer because of what you're doing. But here, here's the thing. My anger isn't forever. And even though I'm harsh with you, I will forgive. I will forgive. However, there is no peace for the unrepentant wicked. No peace for somebody who's unrepentant and wicked in their heart. No peace. And what do you think that's talking about? It's talking about eternal judgment, right? No peace. Next week, we're going to get into the future restoration of Israel. We're going to see that in Isaiah 58 through Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60.